Let's open our Bibles now. I don't know if the ushers came by or not. There we go. With, um, with the Bibles. If you need one, raise your hand and they, can, they will give one to you. If you don't own one, please keep it. And if you want to give it away to someone who, who doesn't have one, uh, keep it as well. But we're in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And we're reading verses 1 through 13. Verses 1 through 13. Um, so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let me read it and then I'll pray. <clears throat> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. I just love this text, Lord. I love what it does for the slumbering saint. For me. It immediately forces us to reckon with more significant realities that lie behind those realities we, we can see. It forces us to reckon with the spiritual forces, the spiritual warfare that's going on even in this room right now. We might be prone to laugh at Satan, at the idea of spiritual forces. We might think it sounds childish. It sounds irrational, pre-modern. But we see here that Jesus thought nothing of the sort about it. Jesus' whole ministry was aimed against it. came, Lord, you came to destroy the works of the devil for the sake of your people and to lead us into victory, a triumphant march 
over these powers. Against these powers. Lord, it's my great prayer that today you would be exalted before our eyes as the one and only victorious one. I've been amazed, Lord, just watching watching you resist the enemy to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I pray, I pray that your victory there would be our greatest delight, treasure, joy. God, that you would use the time we have this morning to show forth your glory so that your people here may be more and more transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. Wake us up. Open our eyes. Help us to see not just our enemy, but the one who has overcome him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, If you are just kind of joining us, if you are a visitor here, um, we have, or perhaps you've been on vacation or you've been helping in the back, we're actually in part four of this text. Um, We've been looking at these these 13 verses now. This will be the fourth week. And I am anticipating one more next week. Uh, Although, let me tell you what it's really going to be. This morning... All I'm interested in doing, and I hope you're ready for it, I'm not going to have much in terms of application. I simply want to watch Christ win. Okay? I want to watch Him. I want to trace His victory. And I'll show you why why and how we're going to do that. I want to trace His victory all the way from this inaugural point in Luke 4 to its terminal point at the cross. I want to trace his victory and just watch him win. Let me ask you something. If you're a Golden State Warrior fan, do you ever get tired of watching your team win? I don't think so. Why? Because there's this sort of, there's this sort of unity, this bond that you feel with them, right? When they win, I win. It's my team. And so, we should never get tired of watching our Savior win. Because when He wins, He wins for me and for you. This week, I just want to watch Him win. Next week, essentially, Lord willing, what I have planned is to give us uh, basically a primer on how to fight temptation kind of gleaning from this text and starting to move towards our life and just thinking about temptation broadly and how we combat it personally in our own lives. Okay? That's the plan. So, now, let me get us into this morning. Um, We have now dealt in detail with the three temptations themselves, kind of delineated for us here. Um, If you missed those messages, they are online. Um, But we've moved from the wilderness temptation to the mountain temptation to the temple temptation. And at every point, it's been victory, victory, victory for the Son of God. 
At every point, resistance, it is written, it is written, it is said, throwing the words of God back into the opponent uh, of God's face. Victory. But the devil is not yet defeated, nor is he done. In fact, he's only just begun. We might be prone to think, man, that's it. The Savior just took the devil out. I love this. Close the book, end the story, we're good. But Luke won't let us go there. He ends this narrative with this sort of ominous note. And and we read it there in verse 13. It ought to make our souls shudder a bit when we come to it. Because we go, oh, wait a minute. It's not over. It's just beginning. This is what he says in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Meaning, this war, this combat, it's not over yet. Now, so we get this kind of sense from that text that the devil is, is, is not off somewhere sulking and nursing his wounds. I don't think so. I think what we're invited to see in this text is that the devil is now lurking in the shadows, biding his time, marshalling his energies, waiting for the right moment to strike again at the Son of God. And this is one of the things that we as a church need to know about the devil, right? That the moment we think we have him beat is the moment we are actually playing right into his hands. That we have to hold our resistance firm unto the end, even unto death. And that's what we're going to watch our Messiah do. Now, I want to ask two questions of verse 13 here um, as we begin, uh, just to kind of help set the course that this message is going to take. First question, what is this opportune time? What is this opportune time that seems to be highlighted here above any other? He, he's, he's departing. He departed from him until an opportune time. And I want to know, what is this time? Now, hopefully... Um, now, our fourth message in, it would not seem surprising to you that I'm going to argue that opportune time is, is, is when the sun is going to enter Jerusalem and they're going to march him up Calvary's hill and crucify him on the cross. The, the opportune time is the coming crisis of the cross. That's when Satan is going to come with everything he has. To make a case for that interpretation, let me give you a couple of things. First, um, regarding the structure of Luke's gospel, this is something that will come into play as we go along, and it's somewhat important to know now. Um, you can get a sense of an author's main point by, by looking at how he even structures uh, the, the, the book that he's writing. And one of the things that, that stands out about Luke's gospel more than any of the other gospels is that he orients, he orients specifically his entire narrative, the entire story around this, this journey to Jerusalem that Jesus is going to take where he's going to die. For our sins. 
The whole narrative, the whole gospel of Luke is, 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 is driven by this critical time that's coming. And we'll see more of this later. But this critical time that's coming there in Jerusalem where he's going to die. And so I think right here, the opportune time in Luke's mind is going to be that time that this whole narrative is moving towards, namely Jerusalem and the cross. But beyond this, we recall um, from last couple of weeks, and, and I'll give you a, a brief reminder here, but um, that as we looked at Luke 4 and these three temptations themselves, I made the case in every single temptation that, that running underneath all of them, running underneath all of them, there's been this kind of, there's been this kind of, uh, um, both Jesus and Satan have been really looking towards, aiming at the coming crisis of the cross. That even though, now here, let me show you this. Even though there's war kind of raging above ground in our text there in Luke 4, that, that there's this, there's this temptation with bread, and there's this temptation with kingdoms, and there's, there's, there's this temptation with the quoting of scripture and, and all these other things. Uh, you don't see the cross there on the surface of it. Right? But underneath the surface, this whole thing has been aiming, aiming at getting the son to, to deny the cross that's coming for him. You remember what I said? And I'll, I'll fill some of you in here for a moment. You remember what I said the, that Satan is trying to do in these three temptations? What's the aim of these temptations? I gave you three things that he's kind of, he's kind of doing above ground in, in the bread and the kingdoms and the scripture quotes. Here's what I gave you. He's aiming at defamation of character. I want to get the son to question who God is. I want to get the son to question who God is. Maybe God's not good. Why is he leaving you hungry? Maybe he's here to hurt you. Defamation of character. Second thing Satan's doing um, in these temptations. Identity crisis. Get the son to question what God says about him. Oh, I know he said at your baptism that you're his beloved son, but then he thrust you right out into the wilderness. You're hungry. You're empty. You're broken. If you are a son, if you are a son, turn this stone to bread. Are you really a son? Where's your daddy? If you are. Defamation of character, identity crisis. Third thing, tyranny of the urgent. Get the son to question his father's timing. Why should you be hungry? Why wait? Why starve? Get your bread now. Don't wait on your father. He might not show up. You're the son. Feed yourself now. Defamation of character. Identity crisis. Tyranny of the urgent. That's waging war above ground here in those three temptations. But underneath it all, underneath it all, Jesus and the devil are looking at the coming crisis of the cross. Satan wants to get the son on a trajectory here at the beginning of his ministry that will have him denying the cross at the end. If he can get the son to question his father now, 
to question his identity now, to start looking for immediate gratification now. If he can sow those seeds in the son's heart now, he just might reap a harvest of denial when the cross comes for him later. Does this make sense? So this opportune time, I think Satan had that in view, even right as he began Luke 4. He's not surprised by the fact that the son overcame him there. He just was after seeds at this point. That's fine. You can beat me now. I'm aiming for this opportune time. Because Satan knows if the son goes through with the cross, then Satan loses us. <laughs> and slaves of the devil become children of God. Because of what this son will do. So both in our text, both Satan and Jesus have their eyes fastened onto the coming crisis of the cross. So I think that's the opportune time that we're talking about. Now, if we have any doubt, if we have any doubt that this opportune time is the coming crisis of the cross, I think all we need to do is look at Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Because this is when the cross now is coming for Jesus. And he's in, he's in Gethsemane and they come out against him like, 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 uh, this band of men as if he were a robber. They come to arrest him and he looks at these guys coming for him to seize him and ultimately crucify him. And he says this. This is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, the opportune time, it's here. Darkness's hour is now. Satan, bring against me all you've got. The opportune time is the coming crisis of the cross. Now, second question. Did the devil actually depart did the devil actually depart? I'm reading in my text, he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from him. Did the devil actually depart uh, from Jesus until the cross? There are actually some commentators who say, ah, ah, yeah, from the period of, of Luke 4, verse 13, to Luke 22, verse 3, it's actually Satan free. That Satan really doesn't show back up until uh, the, the cross is upon the sun in chapter 22. But I think that this view doesn't hold up to close analysis of the gospel. In fact, I don't think Luke it lets us uh, interpret him that way because we can't even get out of chapter 4 without seeing the sun having to combat Satan's entourage and these demonic opposition. That's how chapter 4 of Luke ends, is, is, is demons upon him, and we'll see this in a moment. He's dealing with demonic, satanic forces. So I am not inclined to see this means that Satan has departed from him entirely. What I would say is just because the devils departed from him in one sense until an opportune time doesn't mean the devil isn't there beside him in another sense all along the way. But if we're going to do justice to verse 13 and what it plainly says, here's what I think we can glean from it. I think it does mean 
that while the devil is going to be beside him, tempting him, testing him, opposing him all along the way, there's going to be this increasing intensity of, of satanic opposition. And when we get to the cross, it's going to be, it's going to reach a fever pitch. It's going to be white hot. Does that make sense? There's going to be this intensification of it at this opportune time. So, um, I wonder if you remember uh, last time I gave us the image of a, of a fisherman baiting his hook. That Satan in these three temptations, it's like he's just putting one bait at the end of the line, after another. Okay, we'll try this. We'll try this. What will get the sun to bite? Now, I want to give us another image to understand uh, what we're about to look at now in Satan's activity. I want to give us the image. I'm seeing Satan here, kind of like one turning up a furnace on the sun. He's going to kind of move. As we follow Luke's gospel, we're going to watch Satan kind of turn up the heat on the sun, and it's going to intensify until it's white hot around Calvary's cross. It's going to go level one, level two, level three. There's my three points for the morning. (laughs) Level one. Level two, level three. I want to follow this satanic combat towards the opportune time of the cross and watch as he turns up the heat on the sun. And ultimately watch the sun be victorious. I want to watch him win for us. Level one. If it's not clear already, we're going to be now kind of departing from um, Luke 4 and starting to travel through uh, Luke's gospel towards the cross. So level one, uh, to kind of give you an example of the initial heat that's coming for the sun and this, this demonic kind of onslaught, I already mentioned at the end of chapter four that there's this opposition. Let me take you there and show you that the devil's still on him. Show you what this temptation kind of looks like here at the beginning. And then later we'll watch as it starts to heat up as we get closer and closer to the opportune time of the cross. Verses 40 to 41 of chapter 4. Let me take you there as an example. This is what we read. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Did you see this? So there are demons here, and and, and these demons, as the Son of God comes upon them, are crying out, You are the Son of God. And I thought to myself, Wow! What a shift in tactics from the devil here from the very beginning of chapter 4 to now the end of chapter 4. The beginning of chapter 4, what does the devil do? If you are the son, if you are the son. The devil knows Jesus is the son. There's no doubt in his mind, but he's trying to sow doubt in Jesus' mind. Now, at the end of chapter 4, it's no longer if you are the Son, if you are the Son. You have these demons proclaiming with the crowd around, you are the Son. 
You are the son. And Jesus doesn't say, that's right. Bow down, baby. No. He says, silence. Don't say that. And we we look at this. Read it. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. That seems weird. The devil knows exactly what he's doing. Want to know what I think is happening? Why is Jesus silencing them? Why are these demons now proclaiming? Not in worship, mind you. You see, the demons know, and Jesus knows, that the people of Israel have a misunderstanding about Messiah. That they don't understand what the Messiah has really come to do. They're thinking political deliverer. They're thinking earthly king who will free us from Roman oppression or whatever and bring back in the glory days of David with the gold and the whatever. And Jesus says, no, that's not. I, I don't want this crowd hearing that. You see, the demons are trying to get the crowd. This is the one. This is the Christ. This is the one who's going to do this. Yes, let's make him king now. It's a lot like the second temptation in, in, in chapter 4 there. Where it's, look at the kingdoms. I'll give them to you now. Just deny your father. Come to me. So now these demons with the crowd around who have wrong expectations of the Messiah are saying, here he is. Make him king now. Because the demons know if we can get Jesus to even start to desire kingdom now kind of stuff, pleasure now, tyranny of the urgent now, we just might get him to deny the cross when it comes for him later. Why go through the cross if you could be made king now? But Jesus will not have it He silences the demons. He will ascend to the throne of David, but it will be through death, even death, on a cross. Be quiet about this. When they're ready to hear what the Christ has come to do, then we could talk about it. Until then, shh, I will not bite on that hook. So Satan says, I see your resistance. Well done, son of God. Let's turn up the heat. Let's move on to level two. But before we do that, let me ask you something, Christian. How do you react when everyone around you speaks well of you? How do you react? Is that something you're aiming for with all of your life? I have to look at myself and I have to say, does the pleasure of man and getting people to want me to, you know, we want you to be king now, Nick. You're awesome. Is that kind of what I'm living for? To get people's praise and applause, to get, get people to proclaim good things about me now. Would I rather reign now without my father? Or be just a slave and a nobody and a nothing and reign later with him? You see, Adam, back in the garden as we've looked at, couldn't handle it. And all the sons of Adam afterwards. Let's be like God now. Let's make this thing happen now. This son, 
Second Adam, no way. Silence. We're going towards the cross. The heat is turned up on the Son of God, level two. Now, I mentioned earlier that Luke orients his entire gospel around Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to die. And that this journey, and, and that this whole, this, uh, this journey kind of begins in chapter nine. Now there's a key verse here that common commentators draw out, and it's verse 51 of chapter nine. This is where everything shifts. Excuse me. Says this in verse 51, when the days drew near, in other words, when the opportune time was coming, when that time was coming, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And you have 15 more chapters, but it's all set in the context of, we're going to Jerusalem to die. Everything's seen in Calvary's light. And it's as if, kind of, as we, as we read in Luke's gospel, it's as if the center of gravity starts to shift in Luke 9 in a significant way. And the sheer weight of this coming conflict of the cross, starts to pull at the whole narrative now. And consequently, this is where we also see Satan turn up the heat. As we get closer to the opportune time, the heat starts to rise. Now, let me kind of take you through Luke 9 here for a moment um, to show you this. In verses 18 to 20, um, we have what really amounts to the climax of the first part of Jesus' ministry. The first part of Jesus' ministry climaxes with this question to Peter. Who, or really to the disciples that are all there, who do you say that I am? So you followed with me now nine chapters, or I guess five, since he shows up really in Luke 4. You, you followed with me now. Who do you say that I am? Are you seeing who I am and what I'm about? And Peter speaks up on behalf of the apostles at this point in verse 20. You are the Christ of God. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now, as the ESV study Bible notes, um, it says this, Jesus' identity as the Christ has been confessed by the angels, Luke 2.11, by the demons, which we just saw, Luke 4.41, and by Jesus himself in Luke 4, verse 18. And it's now confessed for the first time by the twelve, on human lips. You are the Christ. They're starting to get it. But not really. Watch this. Jesus will not let them misunderstand what the Christ came to do. This same concern, kind of the same concern he had with the demons as they were proclaiming that he is the Christ. He has that same concern here, even with his own people, even with his little crew, even with his disciples. He immediately corrects Peter's understanding of the Messiah at this point. Look at how uh, Jesus responds to this first confession in verses 21 and 22. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. People don't get what the Messiah has come to do, guys. Hold on to this truth. You're right, Peter. It's awesome. But hold on. Do you know rightly what we're talking about here? This is what he says. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. Don't you think, Peter, that the Christ is going to be king leading you in political deliverance now? The Christ has come to die. Interesting to note, the first confession on human lips that Jesus is the Christ is met here with the first full disclosure. There'll be many more to come after this, but this is the first. The first full disclosure by the Messiah that this Christ has come to die. First confession, first prediction of his death right here. Now, I want to go to Matthew's gospel for a moment because it fills this whole scene out. Um, you can just listen. There's something here that, 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 that shows you the devil's involvement at this point. Um, do you remember Peter's response to Jesus' full disclosure of his messianic mission? Do you remember how Peter responds to Jesus' disclosure? Okay, you're right, Peter, I'm the Christ, and I've come to die. Peter, loudmouth, bold-faced Peter, says, Matthew 16, 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke his master, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, in other words, you're the Christ. Christs don't suffer many things. Christs are not rejected. Christs are not killed. They reign. They're anointed by God and they walk in that anointing up to their throne. Sit down, victorious, that's it. Far be it from you to suffer and die. He rebukes Jesus as if rebuking satanic logic. Have some faith, Jesus. Don't be so depressed, downcast. Don't you know what God has said about the Christ? Yeah, Peter, I know. Which is why Jesus, always sober-minded, always watchful, always aware that the devil is lurking in the shadows, always aware that this, this coming crisis of the cross is in view for both him and his enemy, and he's moving there, and the devil's trying to get him to deny it. Turns to Peter in this moment and meets his rebuke with a rebuke. Get Behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Want to know what he says to Peter? I recognize that voice. I heard it in the wilderness. And now I hear it in you, Peter. You're coming at me, Satan, through the voice of my friend. Get behind me. I will not question my God's character or my identity as his son and the Christ. 
And I will not try to make myself king now. I will hold to the end. Get behind me, Satan. This is not the logic of God. It's the logic of demons. The Christ has come to die. Or the Christ will leave this world empty-handed with no one set free from prison. Peter, you don't want that. The devil wants it. Not me. I've come to save my people. Okay. Luke 9, 28 to 36 now. This is awesome. The Mount of Transfiguration. Here's what we see. It's very similar, as we'll note, to what happened at the baptism. But we'll, let me show you here. As the shadow of the cross is now darkening the complexion of the Christ. I mean, it's, it's now falling upon him, full measure. As the devil has now turned up the heat of his furnace, yet another level on the sun. God brings his son up the mountain to encourage him. I love this. To prepare him for the war that's coming. God brings his son now up the mountain. And we read in verses 29 through 30 of Luke 9, this. The appearance of his face, Jesus, was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Again, everything is about Jerusalem, going to die. This departure, he's going to accomplish the cross. And Moses and Elijah are here. Jesus is now like starting to, he's starting to glow. He's starting to be radiant with glory. It's as if the Father is telling the Son, don't be mistaken. Though this is going to get bitterly hard and horrible, there's glory in the end. Glory hidden underneath all this shame and it will break out in your resurrection for you and for all that you are accomplishing this departure for. But we go on and, 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 and we notice in verse 35 something really important. God's voice again pierces through the heavens. He speaks over the sun. Last time we heard this voice was in Luke 3 at his baptism right before the temptations that came. When God said over his son, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And now, now as the cross is kind of casting its shadow even fuller upon the sun, God brings his son up the mountain to speak almost the same words over him again. As if to say, don't forget. As the heat's being turned up, don't forget. This is what he says. This is my son. The voice comes out uh, from the clouds, you know, as they're up on the mountain. This is my son, my chosen one. The father spoke over the son at his baptism in order to equip him for war with the devil. And in the same way, the Father here speaks over His Son to equip Him for the war that's coming. The voice of the devil, Son, is getting louder. Pretty soon He's going to be screaming in your ear. But I want my voice to be louder still. You are my beloved Son. I am well pleased with you. 
You are my son, my chosen one. Don't you forget it. Hold on to that no matter what is said. And just as the son returned from his baptism only to be immediately thrust into the wilderness to face the devil, so too now what we see is that the son descends from the Mount of Transfiguration straight away into the Valley of Demons in verses 37 to 43. Demons convulsing a boy and screaming out against Jesus. Here's a little picture of the glory that's to come, but it's going to be through Suffering and warfare with the devil. Don't question your identity. Don't question me. Don't reach for immediate gratification. Hold on, son. Here we go. And then from that point on, Jesus sets his face like steel for Jerusalem. I know what I've come to do. Let me ask you, Christian. Is the love of the Father enough for you? Do you know His love for you, His delight in you? As far as I can see, there is no other way to successfully resist the devil unto death. The only way the Son of God, the Son of God is going to resist the devil to the point of death is to know his Father's voice over him. I delight in you. I take pleasure in you. I love you. You're my boy. You're my girl. Whatever. The only way he's able to do it is knowing that kind of love, full of the Father's, so he's not, he's not gonna bite on the hook of the devil. Do we know his love? For us like that. We press in. Don't let the accuser of the brethren, don't let the accuser of the brethren convince you that you're not a part of that delight. You're not a part of that love. If you are in the Son, then you are in that love. We are beloved in the beloved. And knowing that, pressing into that, is the only way we will successfully resist the devil under death. You guys, you are so loved. We'll get to it, but that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not doing this for himself. He was with the Father in glory. He's doing this for you and me because he loves us and he wants us with him in glory. He loves you. Level three. Level three. While much clashing occurs between Jesus and the devil in the chapters that follow chapter 9, we move now through chapter 19, which is where Jesus enters Jerusalem, to chapter 22, which is where the devil just turns it up white hot. Here we go. Let's see if we can get the sun to crack. Let's see if we can, if we can get the sun to forego the cross. The opportune time of Luke 4, verse 13, has arrived. Now, first, and this is probably, this is one of the most painful parts. First, the devil begins with Jesus' friends. First, the devil begins with Jesus' friends. Luke 22, verses 3 and 4. 
Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away (coughs) and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Here's Satan's activity now intensified. All right. All right. We're going after his friends. Now, we naturally despise Judas because we know the end of the story. So even at the beginning, oh, Jesus, this guy makes me sick. But we can't, we can't forget. In fact, even Luke mentions it here, I think, to bring out this point. He was one of the twelve. He walked with Jesus through everything. He was a friend. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when, when <coughs> Judas comes up to him in Gethsemane to betray him with a kiss, what does Jesus say to him? Friend, do what you came to do. Friend, do what you came to do. Satan is inciting not just notable enemies of the Messiah here, but disciples and Friends, we're going to make the Christ hurt. Interesting. I, I, I used to read um, Judas's, or I used to read Satan's kind of entering of Judas here as a sort of suicidal rage. I've heard people talk about it like that. Like the devil knows that he's going to lose. But he doesn't care. So long as he, you know, if, if I die, fine. As long as I get to take the Christ with me, fine. Almost like some side of a, some sort of a suicidal bomber, you know? Suicide bomber guy who's, who's going in, alright, yeah, I know I'm gonna lose my life, but at least I'm gonna make, uh, you know, other people hurt with me. But as I looked at, at, as I'm seeing this in light of Luke 4, and kind of tracing it out, I actually have changed my opinion on the matter here. I think, I think that Satan is ever the optimist. In fact, when you, when you, when you think about it, pride will do this to you. Pride makes you think, I'm gonna win. I can win. Pride poisons the heart. So he's a, he's blind, but I'm not sure he's suicidal. He's proud, I'm not sure he's aware that he's killing himself. I think, he thinks he can win. I think what he's trying to do with these friends, and, and, and as we'll see as we go along, the stuff he's doing to the Messiah, I think he's saying, if I can just hurt him deeply enough, if I can break his heart through and through, I just might get him to come down off that cross and say, enough! I'm tired of what my daddy's doing to me. I don't trust him anymore. Make sense? Am I scaring anybody? Okay. okay. All right. So I don't think Satan is, is, is a suicide bomber here. I think it may, might be more like Russian roulette. Where he knows he's taking a risk. He might lose, but he just might win. Let's get into his friends. Let's turn his friends against him. Let's see what we can do. Turn up the heat. He just might crack. There's Judas, but then of course there's Peter. Satan's on Peter. 
Luke 22:31, and then we'll skip down to verse 34. Simon, Simon, Jesus says to Peter, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan's on you, Peter. And in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The devil wants to make the Messiah hurt. Luke alone records that after Peter's third denial, Jesus, from his place, wherever he was inside the high priest's um, house, turns and looked and looks at Peter. That's Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Luke, it's this haunting, haunting little little sentence that Peter, I don't even know the man. Rooster crows. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Jesus heard his beloved disciple. He watched it go down. He heard that the one who was part of his inner three, James, John, Peter, who saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, heard the Father's voice over him. The one who confessed so boldly, you're the Christ of God. Now, I don't even know him, I swear. I'm telling you, I think that Peter's denial might have cut even deeper than Judas's betrayal. Hearing that, seeing that, it's just the son's heart is laid bare and the devil is just driving his, his sharp yellow fingernails in deeper, making him hurt. Then finally, we're getting close to the close here. Having turned his friends against him, the devil's going to turn the whole world against him at the cross. Jews and Gentiles alike are going to be railing at the Son of God, who, unbeknownst to them, has actually come to save them. There's a the most profound observation that one of my seminary professors made um, at this point as we move to Jesus on the cross, and that is this. Um, just as there was a threefold temptation at the inaugural point of Jesus' ministry, so now around the cross there's going to be this threefold temptation um, at, at what's now at his, his, the terminal point of his ministry. There are these three voices that are heard as the sun is hanging there. Three voices are heard calling out, mocking him, tempting him. He's there on the cross. Listen to this. This is Luke 23, 35 to 37 and verse 39. The rulers, in verse 35, these are the Jews, the Jewish rulers. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. His chosen one. These are the words spoken over him now at the Mount of Transfiguration. You're the chosen one? Give me a break. If you are, what are you doing up there? 
forego the cross and all this silly suffering, come down. But we go on. Verse 36, the soldiers now, the Gentiles, chime in. They also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are, save yourself. Then verse 39, the, low, the lowest of society chimed in. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now the interesting thing to note is that we've heard all of this before. We've heard this before. If you are the Christ, if you are the chosen one, if you are the king of the Jews, sounds an awful lot like Luke 4, verse 3 and 9. If you are the son of God, what are you doing suffering? Prove it. So though men are are railing at the sun as he's hanging on the cross, it's the devil who's screaming in his ear behind them all. It's the devil who's screaming in his ear behind them all. The devil has come to complete what he began back in the wilderness. I think that's the point. He's come now to harvest those seeds of doubt he scattered years before. I want to get the sun off that cross. I want to get the sun to crack. It's as if he's saying, where's your father now? It's a little worse than hunger in the wilderness, is it not? It's a little worse than a grumbling tummy, isn't it? Your daddy lied to you. Just so you know, the devil says, says this stuff to you as well. The devil, your daddy lied to you. He's not going to be here for you. He's not going to save you. If you are the Christ, save yourself. God's abandoned you. You just said it yourself. Why have you forsaken me? It's over. Defamation of character. Question who got it. It's as if Satan is saying in this moment, you're not his son. You're not his boy. He doesn't love you. He's not well pleased with you. You're not his chosen one. What would his chosen one be doing in such a dark and horrifying place? Identity crisis. It's as if the devil is saying, give it up, man. Give it up. This suffering, it's meaningless. If you have power, if you have authority, if you are the Christ, save yourself now. Come down off this cross and be king now. If you display your power before all these people, I am telling you, they will set you up on a throne starting this afternoon. Tyranny of the urgent. Get down. Why suffer? But how will the son respond in the heat of such white hot temptation and trial? 
How's the son going to respond? I love this. I love this so much, you guys. Check this out. So three hours go by, we're told in Luke's gospel at this point. Utter darkness descends upon the earth, at least around Calvary. Three hours, just the son sits there in silence. What is he going to say? I love it. Hear this. Verses, uh, 40, verse 46 of Luke 23, we read this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, his last words, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. With that word, Father, he just slammed the door in the devil's face. Everything the devil was trying to get him to do, the son said, No way! I am his son. He is my father. I will trust in him through death, even death on a cross. And the door just slams in the devil's face. And the door just opens, as we'll see, up to paradise. For us. Because there's another voice crying out in this narrative, and I skipped over. But there's another voice. Amidst all these people aligning their voices with the devils, railing at the sun, there's one lone voice from an unexpected place that's heard crying out. There's another criminal next to the cross, who aligns his voice, not with the demons, not with Satan, but with God. And he's looking at the Son on the cross, and he's seeing something different now. He's seeing the cross not as a problem, not as a hindrance, not as a stumbling block, but as the solution, as the very hope of his salvation. He sees that this one is dying for his sins. To open the door back to the presence of God. And he turns to Jesus on the cross at this point and aligns his voice with the Father saying, Jesus, remember me, Luke 23, 42, when you come into your kingdom. You're the king. I don't care what these people have to say. You are the king. And I know you're doing this for me. Please remember me. I'm a sinner dying for my sins. You are sinless. What are you doing here? Oh, that's right. You're paying for my sins. Remember me, King Jesus. To which Jesus responds, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. It's as if he turned to this man and said, It's done. We're doing it right now. Remember where we began this series of messages? Everything that went wrong with Adam, cast from the presence of God. And, and every, every son of Adam that followed after, rebelling, turned in exile from the presence of God. I am the answer to all that went wrong with Adam. I am the one who came to deal with those deep issues. I'm the one who's going to take fallen sons of Adam, redeem them as sons of the living God.
today you will be with me in the paradise presence of God. Now, (coughs) this is the very reason Jesus endured such temptations. You have to love it. I mean, the last person I would want to spend eternity with is a criminal. You look, you go, that's the company he wants in paradise? It's no longer paradise. You're here. No way. This is why the sun has come. And we're just getting this window into it right there. I've come to call sinners back home to God. I'm enduring these trials, these temptations, the white hot heat of it all, so that this can happen. So that I, Nick, sinner, criminal, thief, rebel, can find my way back home to the God who made me, loves me, died for me, saved me. And you as well. So we watch him win, yes, but he wins for us. He wins on our behalf. He wins to get his bride and get his family back. The question for us to ask then as we close is, is where is our voice? We're, we are outnumbered here. Voices of our culture aligning with the demonic around the cross. You see, you see the cross? That's a joke! You Christians, you're so backwards. You're so unevolved. You're so ridiculous in your convictions. You gather around this dead and bloody Messiah. Get over it. Move on. We had our voice with the criminals at this point. He's the only one. He's the only one who could resist the devil unto death and open the door to paradise for us. What you call foolishness, I call the wisdom and power of God to save. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your victory that you're not just flaunting your own strength for your own glory merely, but your glory and your power is flexed on behalf of your people because of your great love. Thank you that you trusted the Father to the end. Thank you that you didn't crack in your identity as a son, that you didn't seek for immediate gratification, but trusted in the resurrection through death. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and give us that same ability now that we would find ourselves able to walk as you walked. We would align our voice with the criminals, with the low lives, with the nobodies who say you're everything. We need you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.